high decibel, high conflict, highly offensive. A moment on Indian TV sparks a foreign affairs drama. The investigation into the 2021 storming of the US Capitol hits primetime TV. Do enough Americans care? There's a global energy crisis, but it's not the gas shortages. It's the pollution and propaganda by big oil. Hello, I'm Meenakshi Ravi, and you're at The Listening Post, where we analyze global events through the prism of the media. An international backlash from more than 15 Muslim-majority countries is rattling India's ruling Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP. The diplomatic nightmare was triggered by comments made by a BJP spokesperson on a news talk show. In terms of what gets said on the air, India's numerous TV channels are in a race to the bottom. And in the midst of a heated debate, the BJP representative made a derogatory comment about the Prophet Muhammad. That soundbite went viral across India's social media. It even triggered some protests. But the issue really gathered momentum when it caught the attention first of governments in the Arab Gulf and then beyond. Angry statements were issued, Indian ambassadors summoned, apologies demanded. Bigoted, inciting anti-Muslim speech has been on the rise in Prime Minister Narendra Modi's India, with seemingly scant effort from the government to rein it in. This time, things have been different. Our starting point this week is a seemingly ordinary evening on primetime TV in India. Now, now listen to me. One more minute. The one question more minute. was never if, it was always when. When would one of the nightly shouting matches on Indian television spiral even further out of control? When would the increasingly noxious on-air rhetoric jump way past the already very loose bounds of what's considered acceptable on the Indian airwaves? When would Indian authorities, often unresponsive to domestic concerns about bigotry, be forced to the act? because of international condemnation. They should be told to shut up and stop insulting our religion. It was an evening debate in late May on the Times Now News Channel that brought things to a head. There was to start with a very heated television discussion uh, where a lot was said. What we saw was a kind of all-out fight between two people, one referring to uh, an artifact uh, that many believe is actually a Hindu god. And we heard from the spokesperson of the BJP, the ruling party in India, where she said, well, if you're going to say things that hurt my religion, I certainly can do the same for you. And then she proceeded to say a series of things which involved uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, in a particularly sort of pejorative style. We are not airing that soundbite because of how offensive it is. What happened after it occurred, however, was not unusual. Certainly not in a media landscape where channels are constantly vying for TV moments that can go viral. The comment about Prophet Muhammad, made by BJP spokesperson Nupur Sharma, was clipped up and posted online by a researcher working with a fact-checking outlet. So what my colleague Mohammed Zubair did was that he watched a debate on Times Now channel and he recorded it and he put it on his Twitter timeline. That video went viral and it garnered a few million views. And Zubair's primary motive here was to highlight how such bigoted conversations regularly happen on Indian mainstream media channels. And uh, anchors, instead of intervening and toning down the conversations, actually facilitate these conversations. And this is happening on a regular basis on multiple channels. The online uproar inevitably turned ugly with threats of physical harm against both Muhammad Zubair and Nupur Sharma. 
some of the protests even migrated onto the streets. And that led another BJP spokesperson to tweet in support of Sharma's comments, effectively echoing her words about the Prophet. If the uproar had been contained within India, it's conceivable that the government's response wouldn't have been as significant as it eventually became in the face of international ire. India is facing a wave of diplomatic outrage from several Muslim countries. The Saudi-based organization of Islamic cooperation has condemned the remarks. The strategic relationships could end up being demolished at the altar of so-called TV debate shows. The Middle East is a, is a, a crucial and important theater of foreign relations for India. And so when the issue was raised from their quarters, I, I think India accepted inherently that Nupur Sharma definitely crossed a line and she crossed it badly. They cottoned onto that pretty quickly and realized this is, not, this is not a hill to die on, particularly when it comes to a diplomatic relationship which is so crucial. The three biggest oil suppliers to India are all included in this list. Also, these are countries Modi has reached out, tried to build ties. There's a huge amount of Indian migrant workers sending back remittances to the country. So there are kind of strategic ties that are important. I don't think we have seen uh, this kind of a reaction from the Arab world. In fact, we have seen from the Gulf uh, world a certain staying away from things that they think are India's internal problems or about law and order inside India. In this case, it is because the comments were about Prophet Muhammad. And there is no question that they were seen as essentially denigrating the religion itself. So uh, I think that's why you're seeing a difference in the kind of response. With statements of disapproval and anger rolling in from Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Indonesia, the Maldives, more than 15 countries in total, the BJP dismissed the offending spokespeople, saying, the Bharatiya Janata Party respects all religions and strongly denounces insults against any religious personalities. The statements against Prophet Muhammad, it said, were, quote, the views of fringe elements. So the claim that Nupur Sharma is a fringe element, it, it is an absolute falsehood. Uh, she is extremely popular in social media and the indicator of her popularity is that the Prime Minister himself follows her and other senior ministers and members of the party follow her. But not just that, the most important point is that she is a national spokesperson and she regularly appears and represents the party on multiple channels. So if the claim is that she is a fringe element, then every national spokesperson of BJP is a fringe element and BJP is a fringe party. She is fringe in as much as she is not a political decision maker. She doesn't decide the direction of the party. She is very much a part of the sort of middle rung who will take directions and execute what they're asked to execute. Let us be very clear. This government has thrown its own Nupur Sharma to the wolves. The Islamists only asked it to bend and it chose to crawl. The support for Nupur Sharma comes from the fact that there is a feeling within the right-wing community that one, taking offense has been a one-way street for decades in this country where uh, there used to be generally an offended Islamic scholar who would issue either a fatwa or file a case and the recipient would then have to deal with it. Two, there has been reprisal when Muslims take offense. And three, the concept of tolerance imbued within Hinduism has been treated as something of a punching bag, something as a carte blanche to say what you want against Hinduism. Hindu Devi Devtao ki kaisi tasveere banai thi hai mein Fusain ne? 
Having tried to placate angry allies with assurances that the BJP respects all religions, the party has realized it needs to remind its spokespersons too. An internal communique issued in the past week now sets clear rules for party representatives, including staying away from religious comments, focusing discussions on what they call central issues, and using measured language. Much of this is a challenge in India's media sphere, which has become a key force pushing intolerance and dangerously violent speech in the country. Online is where it's at its worst. There's relentless trolling, mountains of misinformation, and a WhatsApp culture that pushes the most divisive content straight to your phone. Then there's television, poisoning the airwaves. The hundreds of 24-hour news outlets almost studiously neglect substantive stories. The precarious position of the health sector, an epidemic of substance abuse, deep issues unfolding in agriculture. Instead, they rely on content that ratchets up conflict. I worked in television for 20 years. Balancing the power tussle between US and China. And I just can't recognize the place I used to work. Uh, it is not just uh, become more toxic uh, to watch. I understand that newsrooms are much more toxic. There is much more um, a sort of brinkmanship and the idea that you must bring out the worst innocence in people. It is, according to me, unwatchable, but clearly it is being watched. It makes for great television, I'm sure, at some level, but it just makes for zero journalism. Much of mass media works in close connection with the government, taking its cues for the government. What you're saying is playing to the same huge growing right-wing mood that is part of the country. And this fiasco is something, in the long term, this will be a blip. They have reacted in a manner which is to do with damage control, picked one figure, dispensable, you make that person the scapegoat. The Islamophobia is a constant part of the political rhetoric, a way of speaking that extends from top down. It is not the fringe, it is the center. And without the Muslim as the other, without the Muslim as the threat, there would be no viable BJP politics. So there is very little chance that one incident like this is going to change this atmosphere. Some big polarizing stories have been in the news in the United States for the past few months. From abortion laws to the gun violence crisis, even the Depp versus Heard trial. Now there is another series of hearings being televised for prime time. Flo Phillips has more. It's been more than a year since hundreds of Trump supporters, by many accounts at the behest of former President Trump himself, stormed the US Capitol on January 6th, 2021, in protest against the election of President Joe Biden. This past Thursday, the first of six live congressional hearings investigating that attack started airing in primetime across all major American TV networks. Going to the United States well, almost all. There was one notable exception, Fox News, the country's most watched cable news channel. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Fox's top anchor, Tucker Carlson, who officials running the investigation have already accused of belittling its work, did pretty much exactly that. So the rest of us are getting yet another lecture about January 6th tonight from our moral inferiors, no less. There's been a big media push around this investigation into the Jan 6th insurrection. As one congressional committee member put it, quote, the public need to understand the stakes for our system of government. And these televised hearings are aimed at making public 
facts and findings from more than 100,000 pages of documents, thousands of interviews, text messages and recorded conversations. The investigating committee have even hired a former president of ABC News, James Goldston, to produce the content for the live hearings, making it fit for mass audience consumption. All of this is taking place exactly 50 years after President Nixon's Watergate scandal broke. Good evening, I'm Roger Mudd. Washington has been inundated by another massive set of Watergate transcripts. Those live hearings that aired in 1973 became a national obsession completely disrupting TV scheduling for the then four broadcast networks in the United States. Whether the Jan 6th hearings will grip the nation to quite that extent remains to be seen. So much has changed, not least the media. Thanks, Flo. For decades, fossil fuel companies, the most significant polluters on the planet, have sought to prevent climate action and cover up the disastrous impact they're having. To help sell that message, those companies turned to the public relations industry. They peddled outright climate denial for as long as they could. And now oil and gas companies and their PR enablers are out to delay. The global energy crisis has provided them with an ideal opportunity to downplay the urgent need to put the brakes on fossil fuel extraction. In addition, their advertising continues to take the true nature of their business and misrepresent it. Tucked away somewhere in the playbook of PR strategies is a tactic called greenwashing designed to protect their interests. The listening posts Tarek Nafa now on the evolution and the impact of propaganda emitted by the oil and gas industry. What's on the horizon? The answers lie beyond the roads we know. We recognize to get a sense of just how vital public relations is to the survival of fossil fuel companies, consider what those companies would have you believe. We recognize that energy demand is growing adverts that will leave you thinking that the industries most responsible for the climate's breakdown can somehow be trusted to meaningfully confront it. At Chevron, we're working to find new ways forward. Oil and gas companies have a savior complex. We have to be net zero. Net zero emissions. A net zero future. And despite all their pledges to hit net zero emissions, New analysis by research and advocacy group Oil Change International reveals that not one of them has made a commitment to stop developing new fossil fuel projects. And six of the eight companies analysed are on track to produce more oil and gas in 2030 than they did in 2021. Oil and gas companies have figured out ways to say, we agree with the science, we agree that climate change is a problem and we are working for the solutions. We're working to supply the energy the world needs today while producing solutions like renewable diesel for tomorrow. The problem is, is that these solutions just don't have any scientific standing in what actually needs to be done. These companies are positioning themselves as trustworthy innovators who we are forced to rely on to now solve this crisis that they've been underwriting for decades. There's nothing illegal about that. Just how trustworthy are fossil fuel companies? This is how a senior lobbyist at ExxonMobil, secretly recorded during a sting by activists at Greenpeace, described the industry's decades-long campaign of disinformation. Did we aggressively fight against um, uh, some of the science? Uh, yes. Did we join some of these shadow groups uh, to work against uh, 
some of the early efforts, yes, that's true. But the climate denial of the past doesn't wash anymore. Instead, the industry is now pushing for delay. They're really not trying to say that climate change isn't happening, or even that fossil fuels don't contribute to it. So they've really embraced instead this tactic of trying to delay action as long as possible. There's pushing non-transformative solutions. Carbon capture and storage can remove more than 90% of CO2 emissions. Exxon is very, very big on carbon capture. It's almost all they're advertising right now. It's one of the ways ExxonMobil is advancing climate solutions. You would think if you just watched their ads, that all they do is carbon capture. But in fact, they invest less than 1% of their capital in anything other than fossil fuels. The oil companies have become very good at recognizing ways to phrase what they want you to hear, which is that they're acting on climate while continuing to produce oil and gas. All across BP, we are changing. A great example of this that I've seen pop up more and more is the phrase low carbon. We're creating new and improved low carbon products. The phrase low carbon doesn't mean anything though. I mean, it's very easy to be lower carbon than a barrel of oil or a pile of coal. Over the last few years, we've exhaustively studied the climate communications by ExxonMobil. What we found were systematic discrepancies between on the one hand, what Exxon and ExxonMobil scientists said in academic circles and behind closed doors, versus on the other, what the company told the general public on the op-ed page of the New York Times and elsewhere. We found that they publicly fixate on consumer energy demand and on the role of energy efficiency, rather than on the fossil fuels that they actually supply. This has the overall effect of shifting responsibility for the climate crisis away from companies and onto their customers. ExxonMobil told us their public statements about climate change are, and have been, truthful, fact-based, transparent and consistent with the views of the broader mainstream scientific community at the time. But fossil fuel companies can see the writing on the wall, so they're no longer selling a product, they're selling an idea. They want consumers to know that they are indispensable partners in a green, new future. And platforms like Facebook and Instagram are where they're targeting audiences with ads that detoxify or greenwash their image. Facebook's ad library is a window into how these companies position themselves as part of the solution. Like this one, which features some of the brightest minds at Shell. I say I work in renewable energy, and they go to me, what's that mean, mommy? But then I talk about the solar panels you see on people's roofs, the big wind turbines. I help the energy that those things produce get into people's homes. These campaigns are subtle and increasingly aspirational, playing on our desire to travel and explore the world. All you have to do is follow the road. Phillips 66. Live to the full. Shell and ConocoPhillips tapped different types of influencers for the different types of audiences they wanted to reach. I found this one influencer who took this Shell-sponsored trip to Joshua Tree and had this really beautiful sepia video of her wandering around Joshua Tree. What I also saw was Shell starting to use social media to greenwash their products. Thanks to Shell, there's a way to both explore nature and to reduce our carbon footprint at the same time. It was very clearly, we care about the environment, you do too, you should buy our oil. A Shell spokesperson told us, we are letting our customers know 
through advertising or social media what lower carbon solutions we offer so they can switch when the time is right for them. The public relations industry emerged 100 years ago as a response to rising public distrust of big business. An early adopter of these dark arts was an American called Ivy Lee. Lee pioneered PR techniques like press releases and corporate philanthropy while working for Standard Oil, a company feared and reviled in equal measure. In the 1970s, a successor of Standard Oil, Mobil, which later became ExxonMobil, launched a campaign that continues to this day, using paid content disguised as editorial, advertorials, that were printed on the opinion pages of the New York Times. This is one of the largest and most systematic efforts to influence public opinion in the history of modern America. Mobil and then ExxonMobil took out advertorials starting in 1972, every Thursday for 29 years on the op-ed page of the New York Times, and then every other Thursday for another decade after that. In the 80s, Mobile actually concluded that their advertorials had affected what they called the collective unconscious of America. They had got into the minds of opinion leaders who, and this is a quote, molded general public opinion. Uh, let's call it by its proper name, the propaganda industry. It is you know, using informations and stories to change people's minds at a, at a group level, at sort of a mass society level. And they are very good at it. John W. Hill, who's like the guy who created the tobacco industry's science denial campaign, he was working for the American Petroleum Institute and Texaco at the same time. You see these techniques show up later and you're like, well, yeah, because they're all working for, for multiple industries at the same time and they definitely share information. Oil and gas companies helped invent a lot of modern advertising. They've always been so good at this. They're really good at this. I never really saw myself working for an energy company, but the more I learned, the more motivated I became to make a difference. And I think that what people really need to start doing is really questioning what's behind the messaging. We know we really need to stop using fossil fuels as soon as possible. And any solutions that don't get us closer to that end date are not real climate solutions. It doesn't matter how many buzzwords you put on it. If you're putting emissions into the planet, it's not a climate solution. And finally, it's been a grim few weeks in the United States. Two mass shootings at a school in Texas and a supermarket in New York have made global headlines. But there have been numerous other incidents taking the total number of gun-related deaths in the US this year alone to a staggering more than 19,000. That statistic comes from the Gun Violence Archive, the definitive source for detailed and almost real-time data on shooting incidents across the United States. Numbers can be numbing after a point, so take a look at The Trace for stories that range from policy analysis to in-depth features. A warning. All of these tales are graphic, this one especially so. Aftermath is a podcast produced by The Trace. It tells stories of those who survive being shot at. Another podcast is Red, Blue and Brady. We're bringing you 12 very common questions that are raised after a mass shooting. Its episodes cover a range of topics, from practical advice on firearm safety to chronicles of the lives affected by gun violence. 
On Twitter, check out John Woodrow Cox, a Washington Post reporter who's authored a book called Children Under Fire. Humera Lodhi is with a local paper, the Kansas City Star, and her work on gun issues is extensive. Finally, Zusha Ellenson at the Wall Street Journal. He's working on a book about the rifle that's dominated the headlines these past few weeks, the AR-15. Trying to understand America's gun culture can be an exercise in sifting through endless partisan arguments. Our recommendations should help you find clearer, more rounded coverage of a tortured issue in the United States. We'll see you next time. Here at the Listening Post.